Hi everyone, this is Laurence van Hilligem with some news that happens after we recorded this episode. I'm really excited to announce that we've been shortlisted for the Belgian Podcast Awards in the business category, together with some awesome Belgian podcasts. So if you like our show, we would love it if you could help us win. To vote, you can go to belgianpodcastawards.be and then click on the page how to vote. You can do so until the 22nd of November. It will take less than 30 seconds of your time, but it really would mean the world to us. Enjoy the show. This is Radar by Nextworks. I'm your host, Stephen van Bellegem, and every month, my friends at Nextworks and I bring you the latest developments in technology, business, and everything related to innovation. Hi, everyone. Welcome in a new episode of Radar, our Nextworks podcast. In this episode, we're here with five of us to entertain you about what happened in the world of innovation and customer experience. And I'm going to do this together this week with Laurence van Eelheim, Julie Vens de Vos, Pascal Koppens, and with Peter Hinzen, the four friends that I have. And I'm going to be the moderator of this discussion. First of all, a big thank you to many of you. Last time we asked for uh, questions to send in your remarks, uh, topics that you want us to talk about. And we got quite a few. And we made a selection of some of those questions that we're going to tackle in the second half of this podcast. And again, an invitation, if you're listening, if you want to hear our opinion about something that happens in, let's say, our world, feel free to send us a message on social media through email, and we'll be happy to answer that question in the next episode of Radar. And also, if you like our podcast, please give us a positive rating, tell your friends, tell your colleagues about us, share it on social media. That would mean the world to us. All right, let's go to the first topic. And it's one that maybe it was expected, but also a bit disappointing, in my opinion. There was a study that was done this month by a company in India, and they figured out that Amazon is actually putting its own products first and products that pay a lot of advertising money get better positions in the search than, let's say, brands that have a better review. Uh, and you could say, okay, this is normal. Uh, this is how Google works as well. If you pay them, you have a top ranking. But Google is more transparent about it. Uh, you see that it's a sponsored link. You could also say, yeah, that happens in retail as well, that retailers push their own brands forward. But I'm a bit disappointed here because Amazon has always been the company that says we have a chair in the room for the customer. Uh, so every decision that we make is going to be made to make sure that the customer is served in the best possible way. And this is like the first time that we see something, a piece of evidence where they are not doing that. And there are clear examples of products that score really well with customers that have a better price quality. So that would bring more value to the customer and they are ranked lower than brands that just pay a shitload of money to Amazon. And that was, to be honest, a surprise for me. I've been talking a lot about it until now. It was very untransparent how Amazon did that. But I always believed, naive as I am, that they would be customer first in everything they do because that's what they claim. And this was evidence that they're not doing that. So they're basically like any other big company and they reason like another big company would do. Let's make sure that we get most of the value. And then second, we're going to think about the customer. And that was a bit disappointing. Talking of disappointment, my dad had a rage recently of a similar kind of thing. 
discovered the online world and uh, booked some hostings via booking.com, was not amused with the location, uh, <laughs> did a killer review in the bad sense and was extremely mad that it just didn't show up as well. And I think it's another signal of, oh, really? hey, when I do a good review, it's immediately there. And when I do a bad review, they really filter it. So wow. I was a bit surprised with that as well. But it's a similar like, is this yeah. a signal? Like, it's quite dangerous. Uh, these companies are built on transparency, authentic reviews. It's not something I guess you want to play with as a player like them. Yeah, I didn't know that. I'm very surprised to hear that, that they just don't publish a negative review. It's not an evidence-based thing, of course, but it was sort of a personal story that I was like, really? <laughs> yeah. If you think about it on Booking.com, most hotels have very high scores. So you hardly see a hotel that has like a seven-point-something rating. When I do a search, it's like always starting from 8.3 and up. So there are no bad hotels, according to Booking.com in the world. Yeah, in um, China, they're actually banned companies from doing that. So the government has, with the new anti-monopoly laws, really said that if you use data against customers, you could actually be fined by us. And, and this has happened uh, with Alibaba, so the big competitor of Amazon in China, where they were using data, of course, specifically with Ant Financial, financial data to give better or different services to certain people. And so they got fined. And so this is a, a big thing in China now. DD, same thing. So using data against the consumers or customers has become an illegal practice in China just since a couple of months. So I think this is uh, going to be a big global debate from now on as well. And the problem is that we don't know. Eh? It's like we have now this anecdote of Shuli's father. Maybe people who are listening have the same thing. Let us know. But it's based on anecdotes. There's no one who really knows how it works and how they operate. And we, we just need more transparency from these companies. Their influence is so high that we need to know. And we're going to figure out in the next couple of months and years huh, because everyone is starting to look into it. So maybe we have to look at uh, the Chinese solution for this one. But um, let's go to another broad topic that we defined, uh, the topic of doing business and doing well for the environment. We have a couple of items that we want to discuss there as a broad topic. And Laurence, I'm going to come to you first. Patagonia, the top guy, announced that he's going to sell wine. What's the story there? Yes, it's true. So I think you pronounce it Yvonne Chenard, but I'm not sure. I didn't so I dare to pronounce it. But he is American. And so I looked it up on YouTube to be sure. And I heard people pronounce it Yvonne Chenard. So Yvonne Chenard is an um, American rock climber and an environmentalist who almost accidentally became a billionaire businessman because he started making his own climbing tools first. And then he moved on to outdoor apparel with the founding of Patagonia. And then from the early start of the company, it heavily focused on both social and um, environmental aspects. Uh, to give some examples, they strictly use all organic cotton for all their products. Um, in 2002, Chenard founded uh, 1% for the planet and Patagonia became the first business to commit 1% of annual sales to the environment. And they also ask the consumer to use their clothing as long as possible. Uh, they offer repairs as a service and even have tutorials on the website on how people can fix their clothes by themselves. So we can pretty much say that Patagonia has sustainability built into its core and in every aspect of the organization. But now Chenard is launching indeed a range of wines and ciders and sakis. 
With the very same approach, uh, the ingredients are grown in the most sustainable manner and the production process shuns any artificial additives as much as possible. And at first sight, it may seem a strange move for a clothing company, but apparently Chenard already launched Patagonia Provisions in 2012, which is a subsidiary focused on uh, sustainable foods. And so why did I want to talk about this today? Well, first of all, to show that sustainable business is big business and not just a hippie-ish side program for companies who want to polish their image, like Patagonia has more than $1 billion in revenue, which is, of course, not the same as Walmart or even an H&M with $25 billion in revenue, but I think it's still pretty impressive. But the second reason is perhaps more interesting. It's about building business models around a higher purpose instead of around just products and services. So just like Amazon evolved from a book company to an everything store, Patagonia seems to be evolving from an apparel company to an everything sustainable store. And I think that's really interesting. So it is my hope that we might finally be evolving from the age of great products to the age of good products, by which I mean ethically good and environmentally good. And though Patagonia is definitely not a new company, what's really interesting is that like many innovators of today, it is looking beyond the boundaries of its own industry, which was apparel, for new markets to tap, and that it is developing itself as some sort of maybe sustainable platform in some sort of portfolio approach, maybe. Um, most other companies that have sustainability at their core, like Beyond Meat and Tony Chocoloni or Allbirds, those still stick to one industry. So I just think that this is a, a really interesting evolution. I think maybe just to, to comment on that, I think you're right. It's an interesting evolution. One of the complexities that we have is I think we probably see Patagonia as an outlier because they've been doing this for a really long time. I mean, that's been at the very core of what they do. I think one of the complexities is that now everybody seems to be jumping on that same bandwagon because we now have like an avalanche of companies that want to promote themselves as sustainable and green and good for the environment, good for the planet. And the problem is, I think we're getting extreme difficulty to really see the real authentic companies that do that and separating them from the fake ones. And one of the complexities that I see is that when you look at, for example, in the finance industry, this has been a struggle for the last, what is it, 100 years to figure out how to actually see if a company is actually performing well or not. And we now have a pretty well-established ecosystem to be able to do that. I mean, we have rules, regulations, and compliance, and you know, we have accounting practices, we have auditors, and there's a whole world out there who can actually see if a company is financially sound or financially crap. But in the environmental and the sustainable world, that is not the case. And I think we're getting an enormous amount of not just greenwashing, but companies where we have no idea whether they're actually genuine or not about this. And we don't have that same type of ecosystem that we have in the world of finance, in the world of sustainability. And when I look at, for example, where, say, a bank or an insurance company wants to promote these types of companies to invest in, for example, the rating agencies that actually check if a company is actually you know, meeting the criteria, that is a completely Wild West story at the moment. So I fully applaud this. And I think Patagonia is one of those companies that isn't greenwashing. They've been doing this 
this from the very beginning when they founded 50 years ago. But I think you know, there is, unfortunately, a lot of activity out there where we really don't know whether they're fake or genuine. I totally agree with you because there are lots of labels But they are not controlled, these labels, so you don't know how genuine they are. And uh, I absolutely agree. There are some, I think, uh, organizations like B Corporations, uh, of which Danone is a, a member, which is doing really great things. But mostly, like you said, it's the Wild West. I agree, unfortunately. Yeah, and also because the shift for companies, it's playing a long game as well. It's pretty hard if every quarter you have to provide your numbers. And then just balancing the investments that are necessary in making that shift towards sustainability, it's not so easy to combine with your story at the end of the quarter for a lot of companies, I think. And what we now see in Europe, for example, is there's quite a lot of regulation that is coming to not just try and build Europe into a more sustainable Europe, but also find a way to actually anchor that into every part of business. And I take retail as an example. I mean, there is now an enormous amount of regulation that is being prepared for retailers to be able to provide a positive impact to the planet. The problem is that retailers often really can't judge that at this moment because they don't have a full visibility on the entire supply chain. And I think this is something where if we're not careful, we're going to impose a lot of regulation when it comes to sustainability and not enough data and not enough mechanisms to really be able to substantiate that. And I think that is maybe in a situation where it's going to confuse the consumer even more. So although I love this movement, we have to be very careful that we don't jump ahead of ourselves. Yeah, I think a lot of companies have untapped potential in this. Uh, and I'm going to come back to Booking.com, for instance. They annually do a survey about what their customers actually expect. Now, 81% of their customers is saying, we want to travel in a more sustainable way. We want to go to hotels that are eco-friendly and all that. So a clear demand from the market. Then you have the largest player, Booking.com. But if you look to their interface, they have maybe 5 million filter options, but there is not an option to help the customer choose a more environmental-friendly hotel. Why? I don't know. Maybe they don't have the data. Maybe the hotels don't want to do it. Maybe they don't want to do it because the hotels asked them not to do it. I don't know. But it's clear untapped potential. And then they're saying, oh, but we have everything about sustainability of every hotel available. It's in the hotel sheet. I looked for it and you literally have to scroll like for 45 seconds to go through all the other information. Then they find a tiny little bit about sustainability. There's this click more button. You click on it and then you have a bunch of, yeah very easy to achieve goals like this hotel has a option to reuse towels uh, those kind of things or they have a bicycle parking and then i think i mean booking.com has such an influence on the market they have such a clear demand from the customer but they don't do anything with it and that's going to be the core challenge not just do well for the environment but use it in a way that you actually help the customer to live in a more sustainable way. And then it becomes very tangible and then it's linked to your core business and then it makes a lot more sense. And then it will also have an impact on the rest of your business, not if you see it as a side project. But um, Pascal, we've seen a lot of things happening in China this month related to the environment. We have the energy crisis. And I was wondering, could the current energy crisis in China have fatal consequences for them to reach carbon zero by 2060, like their ambition is? Or will this crisis just fuel a boom in renewable energy? Yeah, Stephen, the crisis in China is actually a, a very big topic, not just in China. It's, it's a global topic now. I'm sure. paying more on my electricity bill today. 
And I don't like that. That has to do with, of course, the reason that we have invested in certain changes which are not going as fast as we want in the environment, meaning that we have to share resources and there's always less resources than we want. And in China, that is actually a big problem. And so a problem of me having to pay more for my electricity bill actually comes from China. But at the same time, their problem also comes a little bit from what we want from China. And so this is a very interesting thing because the last weeks we got a lot of news flashes that China's reopening the coal mines. They're actually increasing the demand of coal mines. And so they really want the things that are not good for the environment to increase again because they are in an energy crisis. They've even rationed factories and, and homes. The real issue of China, specifically in the north, where it's freezing cold right now, I mean, there's places with minus 30 degrees in certain areas. They are actually not very happy that the energy is in problem. So they are not getting the energy they needed. And so they've decided to, to close about 30% of the day, so three days on 10 days, many of the factories and many of the places, just to cope with uh, the energy crisis. And, and coal and gas has tripled in price in just the last couple of months, uh, wow. so this year. So it's crazy. But the problem is actually much bigger than that because this is all just a timestamp that we look at it now. But if you look at the whole picture, China has never had a capacity problem on energy. There's always been enough. So that's not the issue. There's more than enough energy. They increased the energy capacity with 10% just the last year. The issue is the transformation to the environment and, of course, the pandemic. And when we look at the environment, the big challenge is climate change. And we talk a lot about climate change, but in China, they are feeling this from this energy crisis. What it means is that the summer this year was extremely hot. And so there wasn't much wind. So when you don't have wind, those wind turbines are not producing much energy. There's also been problems on hydro, so not enough water. Uh, so these are huge issues. And then on top of that, there's been big floods just the last months, which means that 10% of all the coal plants in China were affected and could not produce. And then there's the climate goals. I mean, we all know that China is the factory of the world and is producing 28% of the CO2 of the whole world. They want to top that, as you said, by 2060. That's their target so that they are carbon zero in 2060. That means reducing the CO2 or carbon emission by 3% every year. And that means closing down coal plants. It means having renewable energy. And they've already succeeded in doing that because 15 years ago, there was 73% of all the energy came from coal plants. Now it's about 57%. So they're doing a lot. But the problem is the climate goals are actually putting a lot of pressure on the change of China itself. And then the pandemic on top of that. If you look at the pandemic, everybody was buying more products from China because our factories were closed. And China's export is through the roof. Today, China is exporting more than they ever have exported before. And so what the local governments have been doing is they've been hijacking all the renewables to get the targets that the government was putting. In China, it's not the companies that want to please the customers. In China, it's the companies that need to please the government. And so the government has much more insights on the data and much more information. And so you can actually measure it much better or the government is measuring it for you. And so what they did, all these local governments, is telling to all these factories, now you have to do something about it. And now you have to get more renewable energy. And so they were hijacking it, meaning that other factories and other homes could not get used to it. So a whole disruption of the whole uh, energy business model. The biggest problem in China is actually that the prices of energy are fixed for most of the people. 
And so when you know that 60% of all the energy is used by big factories in China, so the risk of China now liberalizing this price is that this will increase inflation in China, but also could actually fuel an inflation that is already happening outside China on top of it. So we could have a global inflation just because uh, we have to pay more for our products coming from China because they have an energy problem. So it looks like we're in a battle between inflation and just making sure that the environment is healthy. And this is not a China problem. It's a global problem. But China's ahead of it, as always. To stay on this topic, there was some interesting news from Shell coming in. The activist hedge fund, Third Point, they have a large stake in Shell. They had a remarkable request. They asked if the company could split up in multiple companies to increase its performance and market value, but also to have like the old Shell and then a more sustainable Shell. Uh, Peter, what's your opinion about that? Well, it's not uncommon for shareholder activists to think about breaking up a company. I mean, that's typically for financial reasons where... You know, you have activist shareholders who buy into a company who believe that the company is not performing well. And they say, it would be much better if we chop it into little pieces and sell off the pieces. That's going to create uh, altogether a better return. But this is a different thing. This is not about a financial thing. This is about, wouldn't it be better to actually be able to use the power that Shell has to facilitate uh, turning it into a much better company? Not a financially better company, but a better company for the planet as a whole. I think that's an interesting evolution. Of course, Shell has been hit really, really hard. If you recall, earlier this year, Shell had a absolute landmark lawsuit against it, where the a Dutch court actually ordered it to cut its carbon emissions faster. I mean, this is pretty strange if you think about it, but Shell was being sued by a number of environmental agencies in the Netherlands. And the result is that you know, the climate activists actually won in court And the result is that Shell actually now has to reduce its greenhouse gas emissions 45% by 2030, which is something that a Dutch court actually said, that's what you should do. This is pretty strange because this is really about a court uh, telling a company how to run its business. I mean, this was an, an absolute landmark. Now, Shell is an interesting company because it's a Dutch-British type of construction. I mean, we have a number of other ones like Unilever, for example, but Shell has been one of those companies which has been a really interesting company to look at. To give you an idea, in 1980, Shell was the number six market cap company in the world. In 1990, Shell was the fifth largest company in the world. And of course, in those days, we had a lot of oil companies in the top market cap because this was right after the 1970 oil crisis. But Shell was one of those companies that actually did really, really well. Um, Just a little poll to see if you guys are actually paying attention. Where do you think Shell is on the ranking of the top 100 companies in the world? Don't look it up, Pascal. I see that you're looking it up. No, I'm not. I'm not. (laughs) I mean, Stephen, any idea? Uh, 15. 15. Laurence? 18. Julie? 28. Okay. Pascal? Well, if I add all the Chinese on there, I think 52. Well, they're at number 70, to give you an idea. I mean, to go from 1980 at number six, to go from 1990 at number five down to 70, that means that we have seen quite a destruction of shareholder value. Now, this is typical for most oil companies. By the way, interesting, the Dutch actually have uh, two companies in the top 100 that are even above 
Shell. I'm, I'm not going to do a poll again because you're really, really bad at it. So I'll just say it. Um, number 67 is Prozis, which is basically the company that invested in Tencent. So that's a little bit of a fluke. But what is really interesting is that number 26, you have ASML, which is the number one chip manufacturing company in the world. They make the machines that make the chips. And in this global crisis, these guys have really skyrocketed. Enormous you know, market cap of these guys. But back to Shell. Shell is a company that actually did really, really well in the oil crisis of the 70s and the 80s. I mean, the 70s, we had the first oil crisis. In the 80s, we had the Iran-Iraq war. And Shell at that moment was a company that was really good at predicting the future. And Shell is the company that actually pioneered the concept of scenario planning. And in the 1960s, um, a group within Shell actually said, you know what, if we just look at next year's budget, it won't work. I mean, they were early adopters of the day after tomorrow thinking, but these guys developed the whole concept, the theories and the practice of scenario planning. And that's the reason why Shell actually was able to predict the oil crisis of the 1970s and become stronger, why they were able to get on top of the Iran-Iraq war and you know, the reason why they were the fifth largest company in the world. They were able to not predict the exact timing, but they were able to do the scenario planning to figure out what would happen. And I find it fascinating. I recently, in researching my new book, I've been doing quite a lot of work to understand that concept of scenario planning and how it could really help companies to, to move forward. Shell was one of the pioneers. And then ironically, what you now see is that they still have that concept of scenario planning, but maybe they're not taking it seriously enough, or maybe they've lost their touch. But you would have imagined that a company that was so revolutionary in understanding those big oil crises of the last century, that they would have had the opportunity with scenario planning to practically understand what's happening right now. And I think what you now see is that the whole decarbonization is something that is just freaking out the oil companies like crazy. We saw earlier this year that Exxon, for example, now has three board members that basically said, well, we don't actually think we should be in the oil business anymore. And that's a very small shareholder activist that actually was, I think, instrumental in now putting three board members onto the Exxon board to actually completely steer it towards decarbonization. Very similar things are happening to Shell now. I mean, we had this little announcement that one of the shareholder activists of Shell thinks that it should be broken up into an old oil company and then a new energy company. But it is fascinating for me, not that this is happening. I think it's going to happen more and more. But what is really fascinating is that Shell didn't see this coming. I think, honestly, if they would have taken scenario planning in the same serious way as they did in the 60s and 70s, I believe they could have probably prevented this or predicted this, or at least found a way to actually deal with this. And it shows that maybe it isn't as alive as it was in the 1960s and 70s. And what do you think, Peter? Are they going to become a phoenix and succeed in reinventing themselves, or is this too late for them? Well, um, I do believe that if you look at the assets they have, the market share they have, and let's be honest, they're still making shit loads of money at the moment. I mean, if you look at the cash flow of these oil companies, it is through the roof. With the energy prices that are you know, becoming so volatile now, we actually see that these companies are performing financially quite well. So they certainly have the means to do it. 
But I honestly don't believe that these types of companies are going to be pushed by regulators or by lawmakers. They have to believe that themselves. And unless you have a leadership in those companies that really believes they have to completely become a phoenix, I don't think it's going to work. I don't think it's the shareholder activism or it's the regulators. It's something that really has to come from the top leadership and commitment from the organization itself. I'm just wondering, Peter, I mean, what you see in China is that these companies are getting more and more private, public companies. It's not purely private or public anymore. And so the state-owned enterprise are getting, which are most of the energy companies in China anyway, uh, they're getting much more privatized in a way, or they're getting private influence. And the private companies are getting much more public involvement as well. And you see that the government has said that this is kind of the model we need to go to because the social responsibility of the future, it's really hard for private companies, even if they want to, to get there because they're pressured by shareholders or pressured by the market or competition or whatever it is. Well, on the other hand, the public companies, they need also to become much more uh, innovative and they need to change their attitude and their priorities. And, and so that combination is what China is trying to put together Not by saying you have to do it, but basically by forcing almost people to see the benefits of this combination. What do you think? Could this happen in Europe and the West as well? It could, but of course the complexity of Europe is the fragmentation that you have and the, the different local rules and regulation. I do believe that we're going to have to take a look at this energy problem very much as a European problem. I wouldn't rule out that that means that we have to maybe think about organizations, entities that are more European entities, where you might have a different type of combination of private and public. But Europe really hasn't been very good at you know, building those types of companies. But I think if Europe really wants to make this Green Deal work, I think it's something they will absolutely have to look at. Because in China, you see that when something like that, as you described, happens, the pure scale of what they do is just you know, capable of making yeah. a dent in the universe. Whereas in Europe, with the fragmentation that we have, often that is not the case. So it might be an interesting opportunity for Europe to, uh, to explore. Okay, guys, we are recording this episode on Friday, October 29th. And yesterday, it was the big Facebook announcement that they would change names. We've been following this, of course. We also got a question about this from Marnik van Loeveld, who said, I mean, they're going to rebrand. In the meantime, we know they did. Is this a smart move or is this just a very strange strategy? And Laurence, you stayed up all night yesterday to hear <laughs> the speech of Mark Zuckerberg. Can you summarize the most important conclusions for us? First of all, Facebook, the app, will remain Facebook. But Facebook, the parent company that presides over all the social media apps and the Oculus products, will become Meta obviously referring uh, to the big plans for the metaverse. Um, so Marnik's question was, is this strategy or distraction? And I think it may be a little bit of both, but it's still mostly strategic. First of all, I believe that a company that has 3.6 billion active users all over its platforms and makes 86 billion US dollars in revenue has about 64,000 employees and a huge PR department is not going to make the mistake of thinking that the rebranding will stop the reputation damage that they have been suffering these past years. But could they have accelerated or, or expanded their rebranding plans to distract our attention from 
the Francis Hogan's Facebook paper leaks, uh, a number of regulatory and legislative battles, and even apparently a miss in revenue expectations by $1 billion, possibly. But the rebranding is also uh, strategic. First of all, changing the name of the parent company from Facebook to Meta is, I think, a way to isolate the tainted Facebook app from the other products and have a parent company with an untainted name. Also, there's the issue of management. Um, who will steer Meta? Who will head Facebook then and the other apps? Uh, could this be a way to keep Zuckerberg clean and away from the Facebook and Instagram app troubles? But the rebranding is also about steering away from an aging public, mostly on Facebook, towards a younger one. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg has been talking about making young adults their North Star rather than optimizing for the larger number of older people. And the metaverse concept is really meant to play an important role in this new North Star of rejuvenation. And so what is Meta's version for the metaverse? This is what I learned about it following the Facebook Connect. Um, so they see it as the next computing platform. They see it as the successor of mobile internet and call it embodied internet. Specifically, it's a set of virtual spaces where you can create and explore with other people who aren't in the same physical space as you. So It still is a bit fuzzy, but it's basically about interacting with other people, places and things via uh, VR headsets or through AR glasses. And the ambition also seems to be hybrids, so a combination of VR and also of holograms in real life. But above all, it's mostly an ambition, something that they envision for the future. Uh, there was a lot of talk about potential and the future, but there were not many current use cases. They did offer some, though, um, but mostly hypothetical ones like gaming in VR, fitness in VR, working in VR, learning in VR. But most of these use cases are still being built. There also was a big focus on commerce, Uh, like you may want to buy clothes for your avatar. And there also was a big focus on the openness of the platform and on interoperability. So you can use your virtual clothes throughout all the rooms and the apps and the games. Of course, if the Horizon apps only work on Oculus, you'd wonder how open their vision really is. So though the metaverse is still mostly under construction and an ambition more than a reality, Meta plans to spend at least 10 billion on its reality labs, the division in charge of building the metaverse. It's also hiring 10,000 extra people in Europe to work on that. Uh, so it means business. And in the next 10 years, they want the metaverse to reach a billion people and hundreds of billions of dollars of digital commerce. And the changes also go deeper than just cosmetics because Meta also announced that it would begin reporting earnings for its Reality Lab segment separately from Facebook and the other family of apps. So the separation is not just in name and in brand, it's also financial. Uh, so in short, uh, Facebook wants people to know that it is much more than a classic social media app, that it is moving beyond that with a new type of computing platform which they call the metaverse. And I think they also want to indicate that the problematic Facebook, the app, is not the same as Facebook, the company, which is now called Meta. And so does this remind us of Google's rebranding into the portfolio brand of Alphabet? Because it wanted people to know that it was more than just a search engine. Yes, it does. <laughs> But is the timing 
of this rebranding very different than the one of Google, I also would have to say yes to that. So to conclude, I really don't think that Zuckerberg is stone deaf. I think he very clearly sees the future. However, this metaverse is going to pan out. I think he's very strategic. But I also think that he did a lot of damage with his social media apps and that this change of direction may be his way of distancing the umbrella company from a tainted product, which is slowing down in growth and also aging an audience. What should happen is that Facebook would not just invest in the next new thing, which is the metaverse, but also work on the problems of its older products. And I fear that this may not be happening enough. But above all, I hope that they will take the lessons from the failures of their old products into the new Metaverse project in order to build a better product. And only time will tell, of course. Yeah, I think Facebook will be successful for the simple reason that I see ByteDance doing the exact same thing. And so ByteDance has the younger audience, has the generations. We made uh, with Stephen, we made a video about that Facebook versus ByteDance. And it's very clear that both are going heavily into VR. Uh, ByteDance just bought a, a hardware company uh, like the Oculus. They bought Pico. And now every VR company in the world, content company, is starting to talk about Pico and ByteDance. And that is because they have access to different types of users and they have access to different types of algorithms, which could be very, very interesting in the commerce side. side. So I think that um, this whole industry is really going into more virtual. The problem is the headsets are just too expensive still. And there's only like 20 million that were bought or sold uh, worldwide. And and Zuckerberg has been investing a lot of money in actually uh, giving people cheap headsets, while actually they were a lot more expensive to make than the cost of people to buy them. So this has been an investment from him. So in a way, it's strategic. But now that ByteDance and also Tencent and everybody's on that same wagon, I think this is just going to start... creating a new environment. And so I think Facebook is doing a smart thing here. Yeah, well, and in terms of branding, I think it makes sense. I started it as Facebook, but now you have all these multiple platforms and it's still called Facebook as one group. So I think it makes sense that you create a umbrella brand on top of that, especially if you have plans to go beyond social media. And individually, I mean, Facebook, Instagram, Messenger are very strong brands on their own. So I understand that. The whole thing about the metaverse, one thing is clear that people like to spend time in virtual rooms. eh? And I'm not just talking about Zoom meetings, but if you look at the success of some of the concerts that they organize in Fortnite, for instance, where hundreds of thousands of people come together and they buy virtual popcorn to watch a virtual concert, it's something that people want to do. It's also more and more clear that people buy digital assets. eh? It makes sense that you want to sell clothing and fashion for your avatars if you look at the amount of money that is being spent now on digital assets. People are paying more for a virtual Gucci bag than for a real one today. So that's also a direction that I think is very interesting to look into. The only question that I have, he seems to be really obsessed with the idea of the metaverse. It's like the only thing he talks about. And question is timing. I wonder when will this feel really natural in a way that people will do meetings with it, that people will come together, that people will play chess In such a room, you have the hardware that you need, but you also need the virtual experience to be up to par. So I wonder how long it will take. He's he's talking about years and years, uh, not about months. 
So this is really a day after tomorrow project that, I mean, we're at Nextworks, we always say you have to spend 10% of your resources on the day after tomorrow. This is an example where a leader of a very large company is probably now going for 30 or 40% of the resources for that day after tomorrow. I don't know all the facts and they don't share all of them, but it feels more extreme in day after tomorrow focus than what Google did with Google X. So I'm really curious how this will change the dynamics in resource allocation in the long run and what the implications will also be for their money-making part of the business, which is selling advertising on social media. So I'm very curious to see how that will work out. I'm very curious to see if there was actually a meta party in Second Life. That that must have been. I mean, I wonder who in Second Life was actually watching, you know, him stream, um, you know, the meta story. That that must have been a fun fun environment. <laughs> Timing wise, I think that it may be happening in phases because he he talks a lot about gaming, and I think that gaming already happens in VR and that they already have a, a strong audience for that. So I think that maybe they will start with that and move on, on to other things. I think that the price of hardware is still uh, going to be the issue. So as soon as that goes down, and, and that's going to depend on how fast each Chinese can produce cheaper hardware, I think the whole world will take it on. As long as you have to invest money in selling your products, uh, your headsets, it's not a viable business. And then the ads business, of course, is, is generating money. But that's kind of like a long-term plan. I think the short term is to get the cost down. And, and that should happen pretty fast. I mean, typically when Chinese companies like ByteDance and Tencent and other companies are jumping on the wagon, it means that they see that this is a viable business model. They let Facebook, first of all, just uh, take all the investment and say, yeah, just go ahead with it and tell the world how good it is. And, and then now that everybody starts to realize it, I mean, 10 million headsets or 20 million headsets worldwide is nothing. I mean, that's not even a market in China. So for them, I think now you're seeing this is happening. So what happened in the smartphone industry, I think is could happen in the headset industry in the years to come. And then specifically gaming, when you look at Tencent being the number one in the world with 21% of the world of games, of revenue worldwide. I mean, this could really now make a difference in the years to come. I don't think it's just cost. I think it's it's really the form factor. It's yeah. the experience. I mean, it's it's still incredibly heavy and clunky. Shaky, yeah. And I think this is where we could really make a quantum jump. I don't think it's going to be cost. I mean, if you see that people are, you know, what they're spending on a new iPhone, I don't think it's a cost issue. But it's mm -hmm. really about making a quantum leap in experience. I think if we can do that, then I think this is going to take off like crazy. Yeah, I fully agree. I think there's one other aspect we're not mentioning on, on the whole case because business model-wise, technology-wise, strategic-wise, I think we can fully get this and, and see where this is going. And we've talked about AR before and it's about use cases. What is fascinating about this whole story, I find, is leadership case. If you look at this like from within 10 or 20 years, like will that pure focus on strategy, on business model, will it keep Mark on? Because he's sort of completely ignores the fact that they created a world that is, as Laurent said, not always the best one. And then instead of showing up vulnerable and like just acknowledging like we have a new purpose and making sure that everybody goes behind that, they just say, hey, we're going to claim a new one uh, to solve all the problems. So not being authentic, not being vulnerable at all about that. I think it's a very fascinating thing to watch, like the fact that he just stands up, ignores all of that 
is not really the leadership benchmark that everybody's talking about in the world. And the question is, will it matter? Same thing with the 10K people they want to hire in, in Europe. We did tons of uh, future of work learning expeditions uh, where there was a lot of talk about paycheck versus purpose. Well, I wonder what Europeans will do. Will they go work for Facebook for a purpose that they're claiming like, hey, we don't trust this? Or will they just follow the paycheck as well and, and, and still go there? So I, I think it's going to be fascinating times in terms of purpose-driven choices by employees, by consumers, um, and, and just how leadership plays a role there. So I'm really curious how that will evolve, actually. Good point. And that brings us to a question that we had from Johanneke den Hartog. It's a very broad question, uh, Johanneke, so I'm, I'm not sure how deep we will dive into it. But Johanneke said... What about digital ethics? Eh? And Facebook is like the poster child when we talk about ethics, how far do we allow them to go? It's a very broad topic, but I believe that in the next decade, this is going to be maybe the topic that we're going to spend a lot of time on, on society. Um, earlier this week, I had a book launch that I organized to announce and to show my new thriller. I wrote a second thriller called The Upgrade, and it talks about the topic of DNA manipulation, what can happen with gene editing, what, what are the good things, what are the bad things. And I created a story about that to show the world what can happen, what the pros and the cons are in a thriller format. And we had a really cool evening. I gave a talk, we invited Levin Schere, we invited Servaz Benjier to experts in the field of DNA. And you felt how the audience was moving from the right to the left and back. We were like, oh, we want to do this. But if we hear this, we don't want to do it. And if we hear that, again, we want to do it. So it's very clear with digital ethics that the world doesn't know yet what we really want, which makes it very difficult to make decisions. And if you have a handful of people deciding on that, that's maybe also not a good idea. So long answer short, I think what we need is a conversation about it today. And there are not enough conversations that just show the pros and the cons without forcing a certain opinion about it today. I think we need to learn first, and then we're going to have more insights to make a decision. But it's very, very clear that we're going to have a big debate about that. And I'm a very optimistic guy, but in this field, I'm rather pessimistic. I think we're going to have a big issue first, and then we're going to have that conversation and not the other way around. Interesting thing, Stephen, is that talking about ethics, uh, and when I talk about China and ethics, maybe everybody's like wondering, what, what, is, what is he going to say now? But uh, the reality is that um, China is the first country that actually has an ethical guidelines on AI on artificial intelligence. And they released that uh, just uh, last month, and uh, I mean, it was in September. And this is by the Ministry of Science and Technology. And so it's quite interesting to see how they are looking at ethics as something that the government should guide the population and guide the companies in a certain direction. And that debate is happening internally, and it's pretty advanced. And it's all to do about long-term uh, transformations of society. And so AI can be used for good, can be used for bad. Uh, but somebody needs to make that decision in the end. And, and so the government, of course, in China wants to be involved in that decision. But they're also looking at it to be not just controllable, but trustworthy. And so they're looking at a way to improve the human well-being, as they say, promoting fairness and justice. And, and this is a whole set of rules and regulations that is putting on. We're talking about the data and users. We talked about this before. The Chinese now can actually opt out of AI algorithms since September, which means if you believe that this algorithms on Alibaba or Ant Financial is telling you that uh, 
you're getting a loan or not getting a loan or whatever based on, on your data, you can opt out and Alibaba or Ant Financial cannot use your data to do recommendations. And so this is the end of the recommendation world if you extend that. If every Chinese says, I want to opt out, there's no more recommendations happening in China. This could really be a disruption. But the fact that China is, is experimenting with this, putting some roles on there, and also uh, within that new guidelines, and that's very interesting, they want to raise the ethical literacy of people and companies. And so they have to go on training courses on what is ethics and what do we need to do. So we're always thinking that China is behind when it comes to these things. But I believe when it is about the discussion, the debate, and also setting up the first rules, which will definitely change over time, they're actually at the forefront of this revolution. Wow, I didn't know that. I really wonder how many of them will opt out to the algorithms. Uh, there's probably too soon to have data about it. But if you look now at the impact of the new iOS of Apple, where people can opt out to be tracked on platforms like Facebook and across websites, this week the financial results came out from Snapchat, and they actually mentioned that it's becoming really, really hard for them to target the right audiences because of this new iOS of Apple, and their stock fell with 25% because of that uh, message. So you see, if you give people a choice, there seems to be a large audience in this Apple case that really wants to opt out. So I'm, yeah. I would love to follow this one. You can even opt out of ads in China now. Okay. You say, I don't want ads from Ant Financial. Uh, if they do give you some, they, they will get fined, and that can go up to 5% of their annual revenue. So they're very, wow. very, very careful on doing that. But you can opt out. So the whole business model of Google, of Facebook, which is, is around ads, would be at jeopardy in China. Mm -hmm. uh, but for Chinese companies like Tencent or Alibaba, they're making a lot of money from the transactions. And so this is more from the offline world. So they don't need these ads to make the same amount of money. Biden's, on the other hand, is also making money from ads. So they would be targeted as well. So it's going to be very interesting to see how Biden's revenue will be impacted by this new uh, law that is now out on AI ethics and, and data protection. Cool. Very interesting. Um, I'm going to move to another question from uh, Rick Renard. He's been following the strategy of Best Buy. Uh, Best Buy is a large consumer electronics retailer. But in the last year, uh, year and a half, they've done a number of large acquisitions in the healthcare market. Uh, and that seems to be very strange where a retailer suddenly heavily invests in healthcare. And our good friend Rick is saying, I find this strategy interesting, but I don't get it. And Peter, you can help him to better understand Sure, I'll be more than happy to give it a shot. I think the healthcare space is evolving really, really rapidly. And in a way, I think the pandemic was almost like the great acceleration in that. Healthcare is evolving into a number of areas, but the healthcare industry at large is really a sick care industry. I mean, that's the fundamental problem that we have is that many of the things that we have isn't about healthcare. It's about figuring out what to do once you get sick. And I think there is now a fundamental move where sick care is really being transformed into healthcare which means that we've seen the complexity of the hospitals, the healthcare system that is really you know, at fault. We see the complexity of costs. And everybody seems to agree that the more that we can actually get people to stay healthy and get out of the hospitals, the better it's going to be. If you look at the cost of healthcare in the US, that is a huge problem. 
It's a similar problem in Europe, only we just don't know it. As you know, if you get ill in the United States and you don't have health insurance, you're basically screwed. In Europe, we have no idea what the cost of healthcare really is. And I think fundamentally what we see around the world is that there is now an enormous amount of technology that is trying to figure out how we can stay healthier, leave healthier lives, and basically don't need to get into the hospital. And I think this is where we now see a lot of retailers moving into that space. Just look at the pandemic. In full pandemic, Amazon launched Amazon Pharmacy, which is a complete rethinking of pharmaceutical distribution towards a youth audience. But I think more fundamentally, what you see is that the healthcare space really becomes very interesting. So for Best Buy, and Best Buy is a place where you would buy a stereo or a TV or a game console. They said, you know, there is a big, big market out there to actually think about connected technology, smart technology that is going to help us lead better lives. And that's, I think, why they bought a company like Current Health. I think we see very similar things happening, for example, from a retailer like Walmart that we know very well that is also moving very aggressively into finding ways to actually get into the healthcare space. You know, the reality of it, it's a big market, it's a broken market, and technology has an opportunity. So I think it's a pretty clever move for Best Buy to get into that. And I honestly don't think this is going to be the end. I think we're going to see more people moving into the healthcare technology space because I think there is going to be an enormous amount of potential and revenue in the next decade. Brilliant answer, Peter. Thank you for that. I'm going to move to the next question. It's pretty close to our topic that we just discussed and that Pascal talked about when he talked about the ethics and opting out on AI algorithms. Christoph is asking us, like, if your everyday behavior can be observed with all the data collection tools that we use, and if that data results in an AI analysis that helps us to live better, work better, get better entertainment, why don't we go all in into that rather than trying to stop it? Shouldn't we push it more instead of slowing it down? I think it's a very good question. We're always talking about this balance between privacy and convenience in our life, spending less time on the things that we have to spend time on so that we have more time to spend on the things we want to spend time on. Why are we pushing it back, Pascal? Why are they pushing it back in China? Yeah, uh, well, I think in general, if you look at China, it's even more extreme when it's about data capturing and privacy over the past, meaning that China has just captured way more data in quantity, but also in quality, because a lot of these big companies like Tencent and Alibaba, they have so much contextual data because they're like Best Buy is in maybe healthcare, but they're like in 30 different industries. And so they can follow the user journey in every specific industry, which means that the data they've captured is so rich that these AI algorithms can really create new users, new revenue streams. Think about TikTok. That's how they are beating Facebook uh, in the younger generation is just purely the AI algorithms. Uh, think about and financial with the biggest fintech in the world. It's all about data and AI. And so this went to the extreme in China. And so you see that the government is taking the same position as the EU is doing with doing more and more regulations because they feel that what happens is that these big companies are becoming such big monopolies that they are starting to control not just the markets, but even the countries and, and maybe even the world in the future. And so this is a danger that the Chinese government is seeing and pushing back very hard. The other thing is that privacy in itself is something in China that also evolved differently, meaning that 
Many Chinese were giving away their data much faster than we were. And that has a lot of reasons. One of us is that they often got more in return. And that was a little bit answering the question. When you get a lot of it in return, you give your data more easily. Well, China, they give their data very easily because they got not advertisement, but actually benefits in their lives, convenience in exchange. But it's also to do with the relationship in China, which is very different. And this is interesting topic. I like this topic very much because if you're in a relationship culture or society or civilization like China, it means that you value transparency more than privacy. And that's the opposite view than what we have about China, because you can't have both. And so if people feel that they want to build a relationship, they're very transparent within these relationships. And privacy is then maybe something like, it sounds more like secrecy. So that's something that people don't want. And so that's why they gave a lot of data, not to show that they wanted more back, but basically to show that I can be trusted. And so this is a very interesting point of view. But all that leads to the fact, and this is maybe something that many don't know, is that China has created a Chinese GDPR. And that is just a reaction on that problem, because the problem became so big that they had to. It's called the PIPL, so the Personal Information Protection Law. And uh, it's very similar to GDPR. I mean, there's very little difference. What they do very well in China is just let the Europeans do everything and then they just copy and, and they take out what they don't like. And then they add things that they think the Europeans forgot. And there's a lot of things that they added. For example, financial data is in there, very important. But also they have a post-mortem. So if you die, actually, who's going to manage your data? That is not in GDPR. And so this is in the Chinese data laws, is that then your family can inherit your data and decide to close your account or, or actually make money from the data that you used to have or, or whatever they want. So it's a whole new way of thinking. But also, they're now forced to every company to have a committee that is external, a board external, that is watching the company, how good they're doing on privacy protection. And so this is not, cannot be employees of the company, has to be external. And Tencent is hiring a, a bunch of high-level uh, executives to do that now. I mean, they're not executives because they, they're not part of the company, but they're getting paid by the company. And it's interesting on that job ad, it says, we are looking for people that are honest, trustworthy, upright, and fair, and have a public uh, interest at heart. And so this is uh, like every Chinese, right? So this is very interesting to see how China is really taking this very serious, very similar to GDPR. But the one thing that is a big difference is the national security part of it. Data uh, needs to stay in the country as much as possible. And if it goes beyond the country, it has to be approved or verified that it's actually safe. And this is creating a huge problem for foreign companies in China, because even an HR manager cannot just see if he's based in New York, he cannot see what his company is doing in China when they're hiring people. So they need to stay into the country. So I feel that this is becoming more like nations and maybe uh, uh, like the EU is keeping the data internally. But this is the direction that China is going very hard because it has gone too far to answer the question that was asked. It has gone too far. And so they're hitting the brakes. Okay. Our next question is actually one step further in this. It's a question from Benoit Creel, and he's saying, aren't we going to go back to data ownership? And he refers to Solid 
and he's asking us, is Solid a good example or is the philosophy of Solid an interesting one when you talk about the evolution of data ownership? Uh, just to put some context here, Solid is a project that is happening at MIT. It's being led by Professor Tim Berners-Lee, uh, who is seen as the inventor of the internet, basically. And he wants to radically change the way how web applications work today. And the result should be that as a citizen that you reown your data. And basically what it does, it just almost puts like your data in a vault. Uh, it's true data ownership. And then if you want, you can open up the vault. Anyone can that needs that data to feed an application can look into the vault. And then afterwards you close it again and they don't have access to that data. And you can decide when and to who you will just open it up and then you close it again. Uh, so it's an evolution. Today, consumers don't own their own data. We don't know who has our data. We don't have a clue. What if we, in the near future, flip that? Is that an evolution that we see coming? Well, first of all, is, Tim Berners-Lee is the inventor of the World Wide Web, not the internet, of course. But I think what he's doing with Solid is, I wouldn't use the vault analogy. I like the vending machine more because you're basically allowing others to have fragmented access. And it's not just opening the vault and then get into it. You really have a more granular way of selecting who has access to what. And I think also being able to not just have access, but eventually also to be able to monetize that. And I think that's a really interesting evolution because I don't think I'm gonna see it in my lifetime, to be very honest. But I do believe that if you look at the next generations to come, we're going to see an opportunity where really people cannot just decide who has access, but how do you want to be able to monetize that type of data as an individual, not just monetize as a company or a platform, but as an individual. And I think that is one of the great opportunities that a, a project like Solid could actually offer. Mm -hmm. I'm more optimistic about it. If you see the need in the market and the kind of conversations we have today, I would be surprised in the next 10 years if we don't start to see that flip towards data ownership. And once you have it, you can start to monetize it. But start to move in 10 years, I think you're right. But I mean, to have full type of adoption of this, I mean, let's be honest, there is a big part of the digital industry at this moment that doesn't like this evolution because they're making a lot of easy money mm -hmm. and they are going to fight like hell you know, to actually slow this down. And I think that's a force that you cannot you know, ignore. Unless, of course, you have really clever state regulation or nation regulation that can actually guide that. But I don't see that happening, for example, easily in the US, for example. I mean, we're going to need to make a couple of really quantum leaps for that to really materialize. And that's why I'm maybe a little bit more skeptical about you know, seeing this really pan out very, very quickly. I just want to say hi to Benoit because we uh, grew up in the same streets when we were young. So hi, Benoit, how are you? <laughs> um, and I just want to add something. I think that solutions like solids would work if we were completely conscious all the time. I mean, if we would be able to think rationally about all we do, but I don't think we are. GDPR has proven that it is not possible to be always conscious about all of our choices. How many of us click just OK on website without checking how they would use it just because we want to go on surfing? So I think that's part of the thing that would make it difficult. I love the idea, don't get me wrong. And I love the idea that we could monetize our own data, but we will have to be conscious about everything. We will have to click yes, this one can use it, this one can use it. And I'm not sure if that's so 
practical. And now the usability is made, of course, for us to push on OK and to push on consent. Uh, they put it in another color so that we, we go there. What if at a certain moment, like Apple now did with the new iOS, where it becomes very easy for not to be traced? What if you can opt out of algorithms like Pascal mentioned? At a certain moment, imagine that a lot of people opt out because they don't like the current system. Yeah, then we don't have anything anymore. So I think we need to put something there in between where you still have the benefits, but where the downsides are being decreased. But if you then do that in a user-friendly way and you guide people towards that, I think that can change rapidly. I think the issue is still that users don't really understand the value of their data. And will they ever? I think that will be the real issue. I mean, we could educate everybody, but I think maybe having other entities to define that a little bit for us could be more useful. And I'm not an expert on solid, but what I understand is that it's maybe, and I'd like Peter's opinion on that, but for me, it's a little bit like the crypto versus the central bank digital currency discussion of decentralized and centralized. And in China, very clearly, they decided that they need to keep control over that, but also at the same time, look for the opportunities. And when you look at data, China is now classifying all its data because users cannot, they they don't know how to do that. And so China is saying, this is sensitive data, this is national sensitive, this is sensitive against anti-monopolies, this is something we can use for algorithms, this should be anonymized, and, and everything has their own classification now. And they're also looking at it, and that's an interesting point, beyond the value for the user, but also the value for society, the value for the economy, the value for the collective. And so this is something, of course, in a Chinese context makes total sense. In the Western context, we're looking at the data as something that we own. But if what we own can actually benefit the planet or benefit the people around us, maybe we should have another entity to help us there and and decide for us. And and this is the direction that is going. And so I don't know, Peter, if you have any comment on that. I think what you clearly see in China is there is a, a clear nation strategy on how to actually chart a course. First of all, I think the perception that they need to do something about it, which is important. And then you have people that are charting a journey on how to actually find the right balance. And that's going to be not easy for the companies that have established themselves. I think it's going to be sometimes maybe a rude awakening for some of the Tencents and the Alibabas out there. But it shows that the government is clearly charting a course. What you have with the Solid Initiative is basically a number of really, really wonderful people who get together and say, wouldn't this be better? Wouldn't that be a better idea? That's really noble. But unless you have some mechanism to leverage that, and at this moment, honestly, I think the awareness in the general public is not high enough that this is just going to be a snowball evolution where it just starts rolling and it's just going to pick up steam and it becomes a movement. I don't see that happening. And I think in that way, probably what you can do with a smart vision as a region, as a nation, as a, as a country, is probably going to advance this probably faster than just hoping that this is going to pick up. And the reason is that, you know, it's the status quo of the established companies that are going to make sure that it doesn't happen that way. I mean, there's going to be always a lot of, you know, really fun stuff happening that is not on the solid environment. And that's going to keep those companies really, really fat and healthy. So unless there is a clear vision, I don't think it's going to happen. And of course, what you have there is China has the enormous advantage of, you know, 1.4 billion people that are 
you know, at least controllable in a way to chart that direction. Whereas, yeah, in the West, there is uh, a lot more complexity to get that kind of a size and scale actually going. I'm going to go to the last two questions that we got from our listeners, and I'm going to give them to Julie. But first, like a side question, we have Dennis Janssen, our good friend from Rabobank, who knows, Julie, that both you and me are diehard Club Bruges fans. And uh, Dennis is a diehard Ajax fan. He already gave me an Ajax shirt with my name on it. And now he wants a picture of me with that shirt. And I'm not going to give him that because it's way too dangerous what he will do with that picture. So Dennis, you will never have that picture, but I'm still very happy with the shirt. But he asked usually if Club Rouge would play Ajax in the Champions League, who would win? You know, I'm a very open-minded person, Stephen, but there's only one answer to that question, obviously, Bruges. I mean, that's not a question. There <laughs> um, we go. So let's, uh, let's agree on that. But uh, let's go to the real question that he asked. And the second question, but they're very related, so I'm going to combine them, is from Simone van Neven. And they're both related to the future of work. Uh, Dennis is asking about your opinion, Julie, on uh, the hybrid way of working and especially see differences between cultures and how that could evolve, how that difference between what we see in, in Europe versus other parts in the world. That's one part of the question. And then Simone, she had a, a piece of research by McKinsey where there is a disconnect. There's like this not knowing why employees leave the company. Employers don't know. And it seems to be like the parts of HR that employers find important are completely different than what employees find important and that there's a disconnect there. So how do you look at those? A big questions and sign of the times, of course. But um, to be honest, I think the, the essence is about people. And that's not so different than before pandemics. It's only, um, in my opinion, companies had the luxury to ignore people's needs for a long time because people have to go to work and they just accepted the circumstances to go to work. And that has shifted quite dramatically, of course, given the circumstances of the last couple of years. But one thing is, it's an end story. I think people, on the one hand, they always need context. They always need belonging. They always need something to go for, uh, be it money-wise, be it a purpose. But you have to motivate people to do something in a way. So that hasn't shifted. And I think secondly... As I said, people just flavored the flexibility of working from home or having the choice. And now they consider that a commodity. Before that, they didn't question the fact that they had to be four hours in traffic and, and uh, had to go to work. Uh, and now they're like, this can be done differently. So why would you now say that I have to go back to work? Um, just from a human perspective, I think it's something that people don't understand. So, But that doesn't mean that people don't need that sense of belonging. So it's an end story. It's searching that new balance between, yes, flexibility and, yes, belonging. And uh, for some people... That means that they have to be among people because they have different personality. For others, they can also reach that from their home place and they prefer to be just 100% at home. So I think for companies, it's a challenging opportunity. And that's maybe a polarity, but so it's a challenge and an opportunity. But I think they can make the difference by focusing on people and making sure that they offer the options to belong to their story. If you look at the Facebook story, the people go and work there do they go for that? Do they strive for that? And what are then the best options to do that, be it from home? But like, what is the actual motivation to be at your best? I think that's the bigger question of hybrid work. And it's not about the color of your walls in your office or, or your home office, I think. 
The second point, I think, is, is from a cultural perspective. We do have to acknowledge that a lot of people or cultures just have different starting points. I think, Pascal, you can definitely also hop in there. But uh, one, our, I'm, I'm never going to forget um, during one of our uh, trips in China as well that uh, somebody said the West just has run out of problems to have. Um, so it's it's, again, from a motivational point of view, people might just not ask those questions and just do that and make the long hours and make sure that they build that career because it makes their lives better. And that's maybe something that we forgot because we're so used to the benefits and we're so used to the flexibility and all the things that we get from work that we also forget like, hey, if we don't do this, this might be an issue too. So I think from a cultural point of view, we just shouldn't forget that cultures and, and individual people are starting from different motivations. And a third point, if you look at global companies, they've always been working internationally. They've always had this challenge of how can we connect people all over the globe? How can we be more of a network company and make sure that learnings from Australia go to the US, uh, to Asia, and how do we share them better? So uh, from a culture perspective, I think this is just a great accelerator of thinking about these questions of motivation and belonging way more specifically. So those are sort of my thoughts of what's what's going on. It's not a system question. It's not an this is the right answer question. It's just about the people working in your company and how to make sure that they are at their best. Yeah, Julie, it was David Lee from Shenzhen Open Innovation Lab that said that, that basically you need to uh, have problems to solve. Otherwise, it's a luxury that you're in. And that's he was defining, uh, he was explaining how Europe was looking now today. And I think you're right. It's also interesting because uh, looking at it culturally, this is not just about Europe or America. I mean, everywhere in the world, this hybrid work is starting to evolve. There was a poll done on LinkedIn, both in India and in uh, China. And in India, about 86% of all the Indians wanted to have flexible work. But they're more in an environment which is more similar to the West in work ethics and way of working. While China, they wanted uh, about 54% wanted to be hybrid. But it was very explicitly that the Chinese, they value this flexibility much more these days. But for them, it's not just about flexibility. It's about why do you need to connect? Why do you need to meet? Why do you need to be in the office? And the answer was very clearly, this is about relationships. It's about connecting with people. And when it's about sharing just information or, or data or just doing repetitive work, I mean, for them, it didn't matter whether it was in the office or at home. And I think this leads to the trust issue. So can you trust your employees outside of work? I think that's the real issue. And in China, they monitor very much more the results than the actually actions of people. And so a company like Ping'an is, is very good at that and just monitoring how people are performing with AI algorithms even. And, and then they try to enhance that performance. And so when you feel that your employer is trying to help you, to perform better, and, and then it doesn't really matter whether you're at home or whether you're in the office. It's it's, But you need these, and it's the same discussion as with the data, how do you measure all that? And, and if you can measure it, it creates a trust because you actually can know how you're moving ahead. And so I think the whole discussion on flexible work is going to become more a technology discussion maybe, or maybe a discussion on trust, but it's a global change. It's it's not just in the West, It's it's globally happening. Chinese also don't want to go back to the office. 
Thank you, guys. I suggest we round off this episode. We talked about a lot, thanks to the crew in this episode, but also thank you for all the questions. Again, if you have more questions, just let us know. We'll be happy to look into those. And if they fit in the show flow, we will answer them in our next episode. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Radar by Nextworks. If you enjoyed the show, please tell your friends and colleagues about it. And don't forget to give us a review score, which really helps to boost this podcast. We'll be back with a new episode of Radar next month. Meanwhile, to stay in touch, please follow our podcast and go to our website nextworks.com to subscribe to our newsletter. Take care.